2: Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great pleasure to have all of you with us for another discussion, and also my co-hosts, Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway.
0: Elliot, I'm going to turn it to you to get us started today, please. Great. Thanks, John. And hello, everyone. Um, I want to continue with one of the themes that I think has been somewhat recurrent and is a good Kind of continuation of last week's conversation on e commerce. So much discussed, COVID has been not just a step change, but like a new form of commercial activity taking shape. And even in omni channel, there's this, or even with the word omni channel, there's this blurring of lines between the physical and the internet. And one of the concepts I've been thinking a lot about is how the internet has given us immense abundance, abundance as far as the eye can see. However, you know, increasingly there's this challenge of curation, finding what's right and what's fit and what's appropriate for me. And, you know, this concept of abundance is the opposite of scarcity and predominantly commercial. Activities like buying stuff at a store was restricted to what could fit within those four walls. So, early in the internet's history, there's this famous article uh, at Wired by Chris Anderson about the long tail and how he truly felt the internet would empower the long tail. And, you know, increasingly, you see a lot of evidence of that, though there are these like consolidated aggregators that have. Uh, you know, considerable power and immense clout themselves. And so when you think of this transition from the scarcity of four four walls to the everything store, no company stands out more than Amazon, right? They invented the moniker, the everything store, as far as I can tell. Um, And increasingly, you know, curation uh, has been just starting on Amazon. So before uh, Amazon truly became the everything store and Google was the first i'd say um, mass ex- ma- mass accepted search engine that actually worked so after like Yahoo AltaVista and all those Google was the first one where you truly start like commercial intent you know more recently Amazon had taken over the start of product hunt according to bloom reach 55% of consumers start their search on Amazon Adept Mind identified, you know, 46% of searches starting on Amazon versus 34% at Google and everything else being the residual. eMarketer has it at 49% start their hunt on Amazon and 22% on Google. But, you know, from the consumer user experience, I think Amazon has gotten so big and there's so many different verticals and the situation has become so unique in certain verticals. And it's so wrought with abundance that the search and discovery element of looking for what you want when you don't have explicit brand intent, right? That's a lot of what's captured in these I start my search on. It's getting increasingly challenging to find what's right for me, the customer. And, you know, I think the evolution of a starting point might become far more vertical specific with key players in each industry capturing interesting facets of the challenge. Not long ago, there was a great medium piece by Alex Carter, which, discovered, which he basically laid out this thesis of 2020s as the decade of personalized discovery. And you know, I increasingly believe this is true. And I had pieces in my portfolio that reflected that before I actually consider- considered the fact that this was something that I deeply believe and truly was investing behind. Um, and you know, I actually not, uh, that recently over a decade ago with a friend was trying this little project of seeing Twitter and understanding curation to be the critical unlock and challenge the platform faced. And yet it's one they're still grappling with. Can you see it in the onboarding process? But the hard part is, you know, you're, you're, you're effectively when there's not that much difference between staring at an empty slate and an infinite slate because you just don't know where to start in either there's not much to do Um, and formerly you know when you went to a store branding itself was a form of curation when a certain brand put out a certain product you knew it had certain characteristics of integrity and worked exactly as you'd expect or looked as you'd expect but increasingly you know there are interesting challenges for the internet to tackle So, one of the ones that I absolutely love and find fascinating is Google Photos, for example. If you upload all your photos to Google and you use Google's like home, uh, as opposed to the like little nest hub, the home hub with the screen. And if you have a Google account and you upload photos, it starts curating without you doing anything. And it's curated based on if you use the Android system, uh, places you go. It is uh is timely so it shows where you were this year last year and does a nice like slideshow where you don't have to do anything you don't have to upload photos it's just all there and ready and everything's relevant and it's interesting i think that's a really cool way to have taken incredibly complex where you know formerly um i remember i went on a safari in high school and i took eight uh eight whole uh rolls of film uh home And my parents were aghast. How could you develop eight rolls? This is crazy. What are you going to do now? We just snap away. I mean, you might take eight rolls in five minutes of your kid just like, you know, spitting their food out on the plate for whatever reason. And, you know, Google photos is able to give you a platform where you could curate this and make it interesting. You could search by people, by date, by place. You could search people with a dog or whatever it may be. Um, but that form of automatic curation, I find fascinating. Um, you look at a platform like Spotify, where in music, they're able to take an overlay of what you listen to and what your friends listen to and recommend new music that you might find fascinating. And that entirely changes the way music is consumed in general. Um, I can't remember the exact source or the exact reference. My friend Josh often mentioned it to me recently about music behaviors where you uh, typically get effectively cemented into the kinds of music you listen to and the artists you listen to by the time you hit adulthood. Um, And yet with Spotify, that's starting to change and people have their boundaries constantly pushed uh, because of the nature of the algorithm as the source of what you listen to. The algorithm has become a form of branding in the sense that it's your curation now. Think about Netflix recommendation engine. Um, that's something that didn't exist in the past, where you'd have a platform which is both paying attention, using data to understand what you watch um, and what people watch and what people find interesting, and then recommending to you what you might want to watch in the future. Um, did the podcast here with Mario Sabelli on Stitch Fix? I think that's an incredibly interesting vertical, where when you open up Amazon and you know you know you want to buy shorts. Well, there's a ton of options. There's so many options. You effectively don't have a starting point. And with Stitch Fix, they know your size, your shape, your style. And if you want to buy shorts, it's a lot simpler. You're faced with like a narrow range of options that are fitting, uh, pun intended, I guess, uh, for you. Um, Naked Wines, I think, is really interesting. Um, they're building their Wine Genie product, which is a recommendation engine. And when I've spoken with the company, what, what they've said, and they've said publicly on their calls as well, Is like the younger generation who's grown up on the Netflix recommendation engine thinks about these things on an entirely different dimension than does um, the older generation who still want a story and a nexus and a relationship with the winemaker, which is more the traditional branding. Um, I think influencers themselves are a form of discovery and curation. Um, there's value to that, but I think it's incredibly imperfect. Um, it's not necessarily personalized in any way. Um, but it is interesting and I find that fascinating. And then you know, this general idea of abundance, where the internet creates unlimited supply of anything. Um, you know, Bitcoin the first time the idea actually resonated me, resonated with me in any way. I'd been aghast at this notion that, You know, uh, a cap in total supply was some huge unlock because, hey, say what you will about, you know, Keynesian versus Austrian, I definitely skew the Keynesian side. And, you know, I've had the sense that the monetary supply should grow, whatever, leave that aside. The real innovation was creating digital scarcity, artificial scarcity in a digital world. And that didn't exist. And just last week, uh, Jack Dorsey hosted Jay Z in a space, which was, I don't know, maybe not quite as exciting as I hoped it could be, but there was a really interesting uh, anecdote that Jay-Z gave about the artist basket and how there was a painting that was first sold for a couple thousand, then 10,000, and eventually changes hands for millions. And after that, the artist actually gets nothing following the primary sale. But with NFTs, you could create this digital tag that transacts and transfers alongside with the painting, guarantees certifies its authenticity and actually secures the right uh, for the artist to take a portion of it. And, you know, when you think about capacities to create certain kinds of scarcity and to narrow the abundance of the digital world down into something personal, um, I think there's a very interesting future that might come of it. So these are some examples started, you know, very much with the long tail of internet and trying to whittle it down Curious what you guys think about the abundance of the internet, the consequences of that, just the vast scale of Amazon, and whether them pushing the scope on how big a company could be for the end consumer, whether that raises things to a high enough level that the niches are so big and people could start chiseling away at verticals, and you know whatever else comes to mind, I'll, I'll leave it to you guys to take the next step.
1: The first thing that came to mind when I started thinking about it was how you're correct that we we live in this age where there's an there's seemingly an abundance of almost everything. I mean, we've we've talked plenty of times how there's definitely an abundance of capital, and I think that's probably the biggest change that's happened in the past generation or two. Right, and you look back to the '70s and the '80s, even the '90s, there were entire asset classes or entire economies, uh, the U.S. included at times, where there was just a clear Scarcity of capital, uh, again, either in, in little niche assets like distressed credits, or you know, across the whole economy when when inflation was so high for good reason, and that's totally flipped on its head, right? I mean, there's there's arguably a savings glut in most of the developed world, and and capital now is is so abundant as to be deemed worthless or or worse in a lot of economies. So that is a huge change, and I think the internet. The abundance you're talking about has played a role there. And so yeah, some of the things that quickly jumped to mind were the ones that you already called out, you know, things like Netflix and Stitch Fix and and certainly Amazon. And I I agree. I I just don't have a great answer as to which way this goes from here. But you look at the things that are now gonna be in shortage or gonna be scarce for the next 10 or 20 years. And I, I don't see how it's gonna revert back to capital. It could well be labor right i mean you just had one heck of a shock to the economy in terms of the amount of labor that you removed and at the same time you have this crazy abundance of all things created by the internet so maybe the real shortage is just attention because even if you have more time you know you could spend every moment of every day sifting through all the possible options you could create for yourself on the internet right like whether you're trying to book a vacation You know, find something to read or watch. You know, something to wear. Certainly, because I agree that's probably the the one aspect of Stitch Fix that I find so interesting. Um, No opinion on it one way or the other per se. But you know, it it is a real problem, right? Like I don't know how to pick out great clothes, right? A lot of people I don't think really trust their own sense in that regard, or they want somebody to to do that for them. And I think that's probably the way of the future um, for the internet. Now that said, I think it's much harder to actually accomplish, you know, good things in that regard, right? I mean, it's one thing to build up hundreds of thousands or millions of data points about if you watch this sitcom, you're going to like another sitcom and recommend it on that basis. You know, clothing is, is infinitely harder. Um, there, there's lots of ways that this can get, you know, really, really difficult operationally. So I don't have a clear example of where this is going from here, other than to agree with the general premise. Yeah, I I also would definitely agree that uh, curation is
2: becoming much more important. And Elliot, kudos to you for finding companies that actually do that, um, like uh, uh, Naked Wines or a Stitch Fix and and some others. Um, and you know, I've kind of seen that myself. I've I've had this thought process uh, around Moi Global for a long time, where it's basically do you try to bring people on board who are going to generate great content? And you end up realizing that the people who generate the best content um, can just do it on their own. You know, they don't need to uh, be paid by me and uh, be managed by me and so forth. They can just uh, just do it themselves, basically, and um, and then if there's some way to curate all of that great content and personalize it, uh, that's another layer of value that gets added. And I think we're constantly kind of um, adding layers in this uh, digital world, um, where you know the more abundance there is, the more there's a need for curation and so forth. Um, you know, and and Elliot, you mentioned. Um, NFTs and Bitcoin and, and so forth. I I think that's really interesting because to me the big asset and what's so wonderful about the digital world is the abundance that you know um, that that there's no cost to everyone sharing in certain wisdom or experiences on, online and so forth. Um, so actually create scarcity out of that um, with something like a Bitcoin, um, to me, doesn't really add value. I mean, I definitely see why uh, people make that argument. And I, as someone who has been um, a a gold uh, bull in the past, um, definitely also see that. But I don't think, um, you know, creating digital scarcity is really the right path to pursue. And I think we're still kind of in that speculative phase where the practical applications of this are so scarce that we're not even seeing uh, what this would actually look like uh, if it were, um, you know, if it it came to pass. So, you know, and, and I hope we don't find out because if you believe that the gold standard was restrictive and caused uh, depressions and recessions and so forth the same thing would happen if the world standardized on bitcoin so um you know i think people haven't really thought through a lot of those a lot of those things and to me uh, abundance is a great asset but it does need to be curated and personalized in in the right way
0: yeah, that's such an interesting point. I mean, first, let's pause for a second, John. I think, you know, one year into this, this is the first time you brought up MOI before me uh, in a podcast. So I'm glad you did that. And and no, that's a great point and really interesting. And, you know, I think your point on uh, Bitcoin and abundance generally, I think I forgot the exact quote that's attributed to Keynes, where Keynes actually feared that by this time in history, the time we're living in, there'd be so much abundance in the world, no one would have to work. And, you know, Phil, you mentioned work and labor. And I do think to the extent that over the last 20, 30, 40 years, the U.S. has globalized uh, supply chains. You know, we took what was a scarce labor supply in the sense that formerly it was confined to the geographic boundaries of our country and turned it global and added in, you know, countries where the, the GDP per capita is far lower, so the wage rate far lower, um, there's been an abundance in labor. And so we haven't necessarily needed that for the same stuff to the same degree as we had in our country. But yeah, now coming out of COVID, there's this weird, uh, I, I'd say more frictional scarcity in we have a blank slate, like a tabula rasa, and how does it get reallocated to what's more necessary and relevant right here, right now um, with the new economy? How much is, we we don't even know the answer entirely to, you know, exactly what the next five, five years forward, what things look like. Will certain things revert, what won't? You know, we've covered a lot of that ground, but I think it's, it's really interesting. But, you know, I do think, John, to the extent that... Um, You know, abundance is a great thing. Too much of a good thing at a certain point could be too much. And, you know, I felt that recently when I took a digital cleanse. um, And I was thinking when I first started, like before I got on Twitter, I had an RSS feed through Google Reader. And my feed was like very manageable. And three times a day, I could kind of flip through everything and hit everything I'd wanted. And you know, I kept RSS in parallel with uh, Google through feed, uh, through in parallel with Twitter through Feedly, even after Google deprecated Reader. And then it hit a certain point where, like, my feed was, you know, thousands and thousands of pieces a day, and it was either like I got to delete every source, or I just got to stop using this entirely. And you know, too much abundance, I think, a lot of good stuff gets lost in it. So. You know, it gets back again. I think to Phil's topic of last week, signal versus noise, and that's part of why I think this was, um, you know, so much on my mind. Or was that two weeks ago? But yeah,
1: yeah, no, it was last. And 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 to be clear, like I think the labor issue is an abundance versus scarcity debate. I think you're you're right, and it's worth clarifying that. I I don't obviously the the prediction that no one would need to work hasn't exactly panned out just yet. And I don't think we're headed to there anytime soon. Although, you know, as we've talked about before, maybe one of the lasting impacts of COVID is a reduction in the work week. Right. It used to be very common that Saturdays, uh, you know, the stock market was open half a day and a lot of people would be in the office at least half a day. And that kind of went by the wayside after the depression. And maybe you see a similar uh result here from COVID because I will argue to my dying breath that there is absolutely no chance that productivity is really going to go up over the long term with people working from home. Right? I mean there's a reason why all these people working from home want Mondays and Fridays as their home day because they're not doing much, right? They're, they're playing golf or they're taking long walks or they're doing whatever which you know, look, is perfectly good. Like I'm not saying those are bad things by any stretch of the imagination, but they're certainly not getting more work done. So in the industries where more work does need to be done, you know whether it's you know an Amazon logistics operation to fulfill this endless you know just-in-time on-demand kind of ordering, or whether it's things like bars and restaurants that are now having to staff up like crazy this summer. Um, you're going to have these huge bottlenecks and huge friction points and inefficiencies where there's just not enough labor supply to meet those uh, openings. In my opinion, you're certainly seeing that in the number. But to your other point, Elliot, that I think is really important here, I don't know of any. Information technology companies that really get this right. Now that I think about it, because I think I hate to say this, but I think Twitter's terrible at this. Right? I mean, I ninety nine percent of the time I don't really care what's trending on Twitter, even within the subcategories. Right? I find those to be almost always a waste of time. Um, you know, if I if I go more than a week or two without cutting somebody from the list of people that I follow, it's it's pretty unusual because I just have. Such a low tolerance for people kind of like spouting off on everything 24 hours a day and and giving me a bunch of useless opinions. And and I, I just don't find there to be any good filtering or recommendation engine at any point of the network or the experience of Twitter. And then I look at other things like Bloomberg, right? Where there's just a total deluge of information, right? Like every piece of financial data or news that could ever possibly be available under the sun is at your fingertips flashing at you in these strange colors. And it's so easy to get lost and end up wasting time rather than, you know, saving time, frankly. In fact, that's the same way, right? And and so are most of the other, um, you know, financial data providers and news providers. So, you know, it's one of the things that I think is it's kind of a shame. Like, you know, on the one hand, to John's point, I mean, the information... Ubiquity is an amazing benefit, right? To have all of the world's knowledge and information at your fingertips on available via your phone is a huge benefit. But at the same time it's also kind of a shame to not have a really smart editor curating your newspaper, so to speak, such that you know that you could spend 20 minutes, 30 minutes an hour reading the newspaper every morning and get what you need to get. right? So uh, information technology companies that figure out how to do that in the future, and, and good luck to them. But if any of them that get even close, you're going to be enormously valuable.
0: Yeah. You know, the Twitter example, I think it's amazing to think a decade forward. It's still their biggest challenge and their biggest opportunity because it's freaking hard, right? You know, if, if someone tweets out, you know, Warren Buffett quoted Wayne Gretzky saying skate to where the puck's going, not where it is or whatever you, do, you label that hockey or do you label that investing? And Twitter's been experimenting and tagging certain tweets based on the category they'd show up in very recently. And if you scroll through your feed, you'd, you'd start yeah, and pay attention to a little of the subtext below some of them, you'll see some of these tags. And there's some people screenshotting and sharing like, ha how is this tagged as that? And it's like, that's because, you know, people read things differently than a computer inherently can, though they are getting way better, like <laughs> based on where it was not long ago. And it's, you know, machine learning. So it's the kind of thing where as people see these things and give them feedback and say, oh, it didn't work in that way, it starts figuring out why certain signals are wrong and gets better at an accelerating rate. And that's where I think it's so interesting because I think we're on the precipice of, you know, a really big acceleration in the capacity to curate and make things personalized in a way that hadn't been possible before. One of the ones I was really interested in about, by the way, I should point out, I don't own every one of the companies I listed. I just listed interesting examples. But one example of like the application of curated and personalized information, um, I unfortunately didn't get to go to the concert because COVID happened. I was supposed to see Pearl Jam at MSG in March of 2020. And I bought my tickets through the verified fan sale. And my understanding of how the verified fan process worked, A, first off, Pearl Jam was the one who coined the Moniker Ticket Bastard. So it was interesting to see the band go all in with uh, you know, Live Nation, Ticketmaster to, to kind of do this. But they use data from the streaming services and your history of purchasing tickets to confirm that, yes, you are indeed a verified fan. And only people whose accounts met those specific metrics were able to enter into this pre-sale auction. And it was amazing from a fan's perspective and quite simple, you know, and I got the email in advance saying, Hey, you're a verified fan and go give this a shot. And I think that's pretty cool. So I, I, I kind of think the systems are getting more to a point where you could actually do these kinds of things. Um, though there is some reluctance on data collection and, uh, data sharing practices. There's some, uh, you know, consumer angst, regular regulator angst and, you know, that might be a friction in getting to a certain point, but I do think these systems are getting there.
1: Yeah. And and to clarify, I think you made an interesting point there about the curation potential that's out there. And I agree, it's going to get way better. And what will be really interesting to see is in, in which categories it gets better, because something like Twitter, where it's just a fire hose of raw information and opinions across every topic imaginable, that's really hard. And so maybe they make improvements, maybe they don't. Bloomberg's much narrower than that. And they seem to have made very little headway. But then when you get really narrow, something like TikTok, right? I mean, what is TikTok curating? They're basically curating dopamine hits, right? Like they literally just have a clever algorithm that says, all right, somebody makes a cute video of their cat playing with a toy. And you just see how how much engagement it gets. And the more engagement it gets, the more it gets promoted by the algorithm and you create this massive feedback loop such that, you know, it very quickly narrows the selection of possible videos that are going to go viral. And that algorithm has proven enormously good at both, you know, finding early what things are going to go explode and be viral and then Curating them in such a way that you have this network of choices, such that it's you know there's not going to be one choice for everybody, but chances are in a very short period of time you're going to get something that really engages you with the platform. And, and likewise, Facebook and Instagram, right? I mean, what are they? What are they curating? They're curating envy, and and they're very very good at that, right? So along these more narrow channels or verticals where you're just trying to curate kind of one human emotion or one human response, I think those those curation machines are already incredibly effective and important. And, you know, again, that gets back to the newspaper metaphor from, you know, back in the day where it was like, all right, is this kind of nationally important to a reader, uh, you know, an educated reader who's trying to be well-informed about stories of national importance or, or kind of macroeconomic importance? And, and okay, that's the that's the curation cut line for the Wall Street Journal, right? And, and, and that's pretty easy compared to, like, how do you filter or curate this fire hose of information on Twitter or something, right? It's just a much different animal.
2: Yeah. And I think one kind of big issue is, does the curator have our best interests at heart in curating sure. this stuff? I mean, YouTube is scarily good, quote unquote, at curating, but they're kind of Pushing you down rabbit holes and and basically accentuating kind of your worst impulses or or worst fears or you know sensationalist uh, things. Where basically you know their goal is not aligned with our goal. You know my goal would be to to be happier, to be smarter. And, and all of those positive things, their goal is clearly to get me to spend as much time as possible watching YouTube, for Google to make money, and they don't really approach it from another standpoint. So I think we, you know, just need to be aware of that. You know, we're not going to change that anytime soon. That's just how incentives work. But it's important to be aware of that and maybe somebody will figure out maybe there is an opening for curators who are going to align this better. You know, we often talk about uh, company management being aligned with shareholder interests. Well this is kind of similar where there's also some kind of an agency issue here where your curator is curating for his, you know for its own benefit rather than for your benefit.
0: Yeah. And well, to the extent that you want to be happier and smarter, I mean, my YouTube recommends great investing videos and a lot of fish music. So it definitely accomplishes that for me. I think there's an extent to which, you know, that's not exactly what every person's looking for, though you're exactly right. There are these feedback loops in the algorithms that will steer you down a certain direction. And I think in my Spotify example, that's actually a helpful and constructive thing because it broadens the scope of your music listening without leaving you stagnant, you know, as an adult with just the music you listen to as a uh, teen. Um, but, you know, and, and I argue some might disagree, but that's a good thing. But in YouTube land, in Facebook, um, that's not a good thing. And, you know, I think, Phil, the example you gave of news is an interesting one, because formerly, you know, the news itself, whether it be the newspaper or the channel, was literally your curation and like you said now we do have this fire hose and that's where i think you know the abundance is really challenging it's scary and the abundance creates opportunities for for curation with sinister motives so yeah you know there's good and bad with all of it um, and i do think you know it gets back to one of the earlier points um, abundance in certain things isn't necessarily good it's it, it's quite dangerous and i think it or not even just dangerous, but like overwhelming. Um, and so that's where I'm so excited about the opportunities for curation. Um, and yeah, I do definitely. I think it's important that it came up that there 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 is a downside and there's an ugly side, and that happens to be the areas where cur- curation is most perfect most perfected as of today. So that's that's I think one of the challenges where you're facing this data angst, right? As you know, some of the more harmless and helpful applications might be deployed.
1: Yeah, I will say I will say too, Elliot. I think that's really important. I mean, it, it in terms of both you know being a better investor and a better analyst, and just being happier in life. I overabundance can really weigh on you, right? I mean, there was a period of several years there where I seem to think that it was my mission in life to cover every possible inch of ground that was out there and read every possible thing, talk to every person. And I was just swimming in too much information and in, in too much data. And, and as I've gotten further along and hopefully gotten better, the more I've been able to turn things off and just blissfully ignore them to focus on the fewer and fewer things that actually matter. I think it dramatically helps. And it goes back to, I forget which episode it was that we talked about this, but it's kind of the concept of a uniform at work, right? And you've seen presidents talk about this, right? Where, um, you know, they would just say, all right, I have a navy blue suit or a gray suit and I have a white shirt and I have a red tie or a blue tie. And they're just kind of like laid out in the closet in order so that when you walk in there in the morning, there's absolutely no decision to be made, right? It's, It's decision fatigue is really real. Um, We talked a little bit about decision fatigue last week with the Kahneman book that's out, and there's a great article in in 2011 on that very topic. And I think there's a real fatigue that comes with overabundance, particularly overabundance of information and choices. So uh, it is an opportunity and a threat, that's for sure.
0: And let's tie this into investing, right? I used to think, like I gave my generalist manifesto early on, so therefore, I'm a go-anywhere investor. And as Munger once said, it's about who turns over the most rocks yet i think the most important progression i made personally as an investor is saying like i'm going to narrow my universe and defining it in a way that was narrow and fit what i needed to be looking for and made sure the companies i'm working on you know are within a kind of you know narrower scope it doesn't mean i don't have flexibility to go to different kinds of places and i mean places in the You know, literal—not in the literal Um, sense—but you know, I think uh, abundance could be a big challenge. And the more filters you use, the better you get at narrowing the funnel of many things. You know, I I think there's a reason why in advertising, the top of funnel is the cheapest uh, cost per—you know, CPM, whatever it is. The bottom of the funnel is the most expensive, right? So you know, we all have to build our own funnels, and I think that's the job of the next generation of internet companies to narrow the funnel for everyone as a user.
1: You're right, and I think that's the one of the hardest parts of investing is how to narrow that funnel for yourself. Because if you're just a monkey trying to crank out, you know, a new idea every day or every week or even every month, sometimes you're never going to know when a truly special opportunity comes along. And so, you know that that's another. Danger from overabundance is if you just think everything's out there all the time, you're never going to notice when something truly special crosses your desk.
0: Exactly. And relatedly, you know, the ROI of working on a name that's, you know, farther from the core of where your funnel should be um, is going. To, the ROI will be far less. Like if you fast forward five years on all those decisions you say no to, like I think there's a lot of ROI in those no decisions that you just don't know when, where they're going to manifest. But so long as your funnel's narrow.
2: Great.
1: Well, thanks, guys. Uh, Phil, let's uh, move over to you for your topic of the week. Sure. So I wanted to talk about something that apparently has come to be known as Firestone's law of forecasting. And uh, I saw this when I was reviewing some old notes. And so and then I tried to spend a little bit of time on the internet figuring out what the provenance of it was. But uh, I don't think it's actually from Alice Schroeder's book, The Snowball her biography of of Buffett, although some Buffett stuff, of course, as with everything, does tie in here. But uh, anyway, whatever the source is, I apologize for not citing it properly, but Firestone's Law of Forecasting, it's kind of a Murphy's Law kind of thing. Uh, I wonder if it's apocryphal, but Firestone's Law of Forecasting just says chicken little only has to be right once, which of course has massive and obvious implications once you pause to think about it. And when I read that the other day, it just really hit me right between the eyes because I've just kind of had this nagging feeling for a long time now, going right back to the onset of the pandemic, you know, well over a year ago, that for whatever reason, there was this kind of blind willingness to take on really long-tailed bets that were going against you, right. To basically play Russian roulette. And it, and I've talked about this before, how, how just stunned I was that, you know, right as the pandemic was setting in in February and March of 2020, I was immediately getting calls from every random Joe that seemingly had my phone number getting texts saying like, Hey, you know, what should I do here? What should I buy? And there was just this immediate rush toward speculation In the face of a once a generation pandemic that I really couldn't reconcile and I really thought was bizarre. And it kind of, my natural tendency then is to zig when everyone zags. And of course, that didn't work out too well for me in the short run. But I I do think as you look back at the odds, um, you know, it really does have a lesson though, because just because something like Hertz ended up pursuing or or filing bankruptcy and and getting a recovery for its equity shareholders doesn't mean that that was right so to speak. I'm using air quotes here, right, or correct, or a good decision, right? Because it, it, it's sort of like buying a lot of mispriced lottery tickets and having one of them mispriced, meaning that you overpaid for them, right? Like the chances are 50-50, but you only make 25 cents when you bet a dollar and you win, like that sort of thing. That's not a great way to accumulate uh, wealth or make good decisions over time. And so I, I was sort of thinking about this. And if you flip it upside down, like the number of people that have just been taking kind of crazy Outsized risks lately, um, and, and I'll get into you know some of what I've seen lately, and I want to get John and Ellie to chime in with what they've seen lately. But it gets back to this idea that really the primary goal um, in a lot of investing is to avoid loss. It, you know, there are lots of people over the years that have said some variation of, you know, I, I I didn't have a lot of money when I started, and I'd like to not go back there. And it's amazing how many people have had either through Hard work and diligence, or just blind luck, have been able to accumulate some assets and seem willing to continue to risk it all. Um, You know the famous Buffett quote about you know risking what you have and need for what you don't have and don't need is just plain foolishness. And you know he was talking about financial speculators, particularly the leveraged variety at the time. And we've talked before, I think there there was a guy written up in the in the Wall Street Journal who had made a series of rolled cumulative bets. Uh, buying call options on Tesla last year and had turned a tiny amount of money into a couple of million dollars, which was a huge amount of money for him. It's a huge amount of money for anybody. And yet he didn't see the need to change his behavior or take any money off the table or do anything differently. And that that seems kind of bizarre to me. And so I was, I was framing it in the context of uh, a set of probabilities that are very simple and very basic, but I think most people Probably don't think about on a daily basis when they're framing risk. And that's just a simple cumulative probability of a low probability event happening over a longer period of time. Right. So I, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. You guys probably have, but um, if there's let's say a 3% probability of an event happening this year, you know, 3%, pretty low, no big deal, right? Like maybe you're willing to tolerate that. But if you continue to make that bet, and let's assume they're independent, over 50 years, let's call it your adult lifetime, there's a 78% chance of one of those events actually hitting and actually occurring, right? Even if you go down to a 1% event in a given year, right? Let's say there's a 1% chance of a massive power grid failure, 1% chance of a major broker dealer going under and requiring you know, some sort of financial systemic risk style bailout something really bad. A, you know. A global pandemic's a good example, right? I mean, lots of people would have told you there was at least a 1% chance of that happening in a given year. And we actually went more than 50 years um, before that finally did happen. But over a 50-year period, the numbers would tell you that's about a 40% chance, right? So 1% in a given year, almost a 40% chance over 50 years. I don't think people really reconcile that concept too well in their heads. And it has Big implications, right? I mean, even if you if you go up to a ten percent chance over a fifty-year period, that's a ninety-nine point five percent cumulative probability, roughly. I mean, so it's it's really pretty astounding. And, it, and so I, I was sort of looking around, and saying, all right, what one percent odds of a wipeout kind of bet are people taking right now? And I, I actually came up with a pretty good list of things, which was pretty stunning. I frankly think anybody that's selling options, um, particularly the Robinhood style crowd, that's been so well-publicized lately that's, that's just out there messing around with options when they have no clue what they're doing. Not only do they have no clue about this basic, basic elementary math that I just walked through, they have no clue how options work and how human behavior works and how the markets work and how the clearing process works and the settlement process. They have no clue what they're doing. And they're out there buying and selling options. I mean, look, plenty of the, the professional fund managers out there, I hate to say it, that were really killed by the GameStop fiasco or AMC or whatever else were killed because of options, right? I mean, options are dangerous instruments. And I don't see why there's a good reason for option volumes to be exploding as they have been for the last year or two, other than just a sign of a speculative market that's being fed by the the drug dealers that are the broker dealers like Robinhood that are pushing this kind of stuff out there. I, it's just, it's crazy to see. So, I mean, to to avoid this sort of You know, one percent chance of a wipeout in any given year, but you know, kind of a coin flip chance of doing it over your lifetime. Just don't mess around with options, right? I mean, that'd be the easiest way to avoid financial Russian roulette. Other ones I've seen on the long side. I mean, if you if you own a century bond, the so-called century bonds, the hundred-year bonds issued by some developing countries or even established countries for that matter, you're taking crazy amounts of duration risk. That seems to me to be just a really bad bet. Right, I mean, because the odds of either a total debasement of the currency or an outright default certainly, in my view, approaches that forty or fifty percent threshold over a fifty-year time horizon. Um, you know, a- anything with leverage, frankly, I think, is just a force multiplier on these odds and can really bring in some bad, um, some bad outcomes into the picture. You know, one, one thing that that occurred to me too was I, you often hear this example of you know. Fiat currency is going to be debased so much over time, the US dollar is going to zero or whatever, and that's why I'm going to own a crypto asset or an NFT or some al- alternative currency. But then flip it around on its head. I mean, it, do the math where you say, what are the odds of what I'm predicting? And if that happens, what are the outcomes? And therefore, what position size should I have? Because if you think there's a you know, 1% chance of the US defaulting on its obligations or the dollar becoming you know effectively worthless or going into some sort of hyperinflation mode i mean that means that over your investing lifetime it's more like a 40% chance of that happening eventually right and these are not that's not a great example because it's not a truly independent event every year but that gets back to the point that in financial markets really low probability events probably breed complacency and and reduce that independence every year and make the ultimate outcome actually more likely over time, right? Because if you think, all right, there's only a 1% chance of this company defaulting and sure enough, a year goes by and it did not default. And the best way to analyze it would be to say, all right, there's another 1% chance next year. In your mind, either implicitly or explicitly, you probably scale those numbers down and say it's less than 1%. And the next year, it's a little less again. And the the third and fourth year, it's less and less and less so that you're actually getting a little bit complacent and skewing the odds artificially low. I think that's you know obviously somewhat true in in financial markets. You know, if if you look at outside of financial stuff, we talked about the pandemic. That's an obvious example, major hurricanes hitting big cities, you know, like Miami or Houston or whatever that, I mean, that's a 1% kind of chance every year, but becomes much more likely over, over decades, uh, some sort of nuclear attack or nuclear incident, you know, Sam, Nunn and the nuclear threat initiative is a fascinating, uh, Enterprise, if you want to read about some of that kind of stuff, I'd I'd highly recommend it. We almost saw it this year where the power grid in Texas failed um, in February during that winter storm where they were literally within four or five minutes of having the grid fall below the, the required frequency that would have basically fried the entire thing and put the entire state of Texas into the dark for weeks or months. I mean, you know, what were the odds of that coming in? You know, pretty low. But I think if you'd asked a lot of experts, they would have said that yeah, sure. Maybe that's a one in a hundred chance this year. And over a few decades, that that really does add up. So, how do you prepare for this kind of stuff? Right. I mean, that's that's the big question. And I think that's where, as an investor, your first filter should always just be: I'm not taking any catastrophic risk, right? I don't, I don't care what the upside is. If the downside is zero, I just stop and move on. So even though I couldn't find any evidence for the Firestone's law of forecasting is having been in the snowball, maybe it is. I'll try to go reread the whole thing at some point. It's been several years. But um, a good example that stands out is the Mid Continent Tab Company, which is cited as an example in the book and in some of Alice Schroeder's subsequent interviews, which is interesting, right? Because it was actually a fintech of its time, it was actually a computer punch card, uh, kind of raw computational power company. And the founders uh, came to Buffett very early on and said, look, we've got this great thing. It's better than sliced bread of its day. You know, this thing's really going to kill it. And would you like to invest? And he passed right away because it was a brand new company. It was basically a startup. And he said, There's way too much catastrophic failure risk here. I'm not willing to take a zero on on any amount of my personal net worth. They came back to him a few years later after the thing had grown like an absolute weed and put up 30 and 40% net profit margins. And it was obviously doing much, much better as a company. And the the product itself had like a one year payback for anybody that installed it. So the proposition became much, much better. And he put 20% of his personal net worth in the company. And then a few years went by and he made a lot more money personally, but the company killed it to an even higher degree, right? I mean, the company's really making tons of money and growing like crazy. And he ended up putting ultimately a million dollars into the company and letting it sit then for 18 years and made a 33% compound annual return. Now, if he had rolled the dice at the very beginning, maybe he would have been wrong and he would have lost everything. But what he did was he said, I'm not investing then, but I will invest later at a higher price because the odds are way better. right? Instead of a 1% chance of a wipeout at the very beginning, as low as that may sound, he thought it was a tiny fraction of 1% when he finally invested that $1 million, or even when he invested the $60,000 slug in between. And that to me, I think is the key point. And that's one thing where I will say, even though I've been wrong plenty of times and I've missed plenty of Potential gains that that are very painful in hindsight. I, I really have not taken any dumb risks over the last call it 10 years, where I look back and think, wow, I was really running around with a knife there, right? I mean, the old story that an idiot who runs through a dynamite factory with a lit torch and survives is still an idiot. You know, I've been trying to avoid that pretty diligently for the last 10 years. And I think I've done a pretty good job of it. And I look around and wonder whether I'm just totally out of step right now or why, or or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's not more idiots running through dynamite factories right now with an open torch, but uh, I'll stop there and see what you guys think. I mean, do you have other examples of this sort of 1% odds piling up on you over time, or do do you think I'm uh, missing something in, in the current environment?
0: Yeah, I don't really have any great examples, but I think these kinds of like trouble with numbers are always interesting. And, you know, maybe it's the flip side of that, but I tend to think the other side is more dangerous. So I'll give you an example. Um, When my wife was pregnant, one of the two times she ate a turkey sandwich, it was panicking that she was going to get listeria. So I looked up, you know, um, uh, and the quote she gave was, pregnant women are 10 times more likely to get listeria. Oh my God. I just increased my risk by 10 times over. And you look up, there's 1600 cases of listeria in the U.S. a year. So pregnant people are 10 times more likely to get something that's way less than a one in a million chance. And, you know, just because that's the case, there's an advisory, you know, that says pregnant women are 10 times more likely to get listeria. Therefore they shouldn't eat uh, processed meats. Um, and, you know, I, I just find these sorts of exercises fascinating. I think there's so many different examples where it goes wrong um, or where people frame it entirely wrong. I feel like not a year's gone by in this industry, in this business, where there's been a six sigma event. And I feel like we've had several years where there are like, I don't know, this one already, several Six Sigma events. And, you know, that tells tells you something about like something that should happen one in a billion samples um and we're definitely not running a billion samples on any of these things maybe just the framing is all wrong and the way we're thinking about some of these things are all wrong but i'd say without a doubt your point that anything with leverage inherently has this kind of risk it really resonates with me and it sits uh it, it's very well situated with what's transpired this year in particular you look at like amazing investors who, you know, I think that at a certain point you earn the right to take leverage um in your in certain kinds of strategies, like in, you know, long, short, low net strategies. But my God, you just got to remember you're trading one kind of risk for another and just be very cognizant of it. Um, so, you know, I I I'm gonna keep thinking of examples as we talk about this topic. I don't have any specific ones right off the bat, but you know, the the only other one I'd add is I do think, you know, those people that get mad when they say, um, you know, 80% chance of uh rain today and it doesn't rain like, my God, I canceled my plans because they said it was going to rain. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the way these things work. Yeah. You know, not to get me started on the weather, right?
1: There's no, <laughs> there's no area of, greater misunderstanding of probabilities, I think. I mean, maybe the financial markets would be a good one too when you think about the way people behave, particularly with low probability events. But yeah, I mean, look, it's a great example. I don't know if if you've been paying attention to this, but what just happened in the Pacific Northwest of the United States is a great example of, of low probability events coming home to roost. It would have been hard for anyone to possibly imagine Portland, Oregon, hitting 115 degrees Fahrenheit, like it just did a few days ago, or Seattle hitting 108 degrees Fahrenheit, like it did on the same day. It right? was I mind mean,
0: blowing. Portland has a higher all-time high than Las Vegas now.
1: Yeah, correct. Yeah, which is just and again, so these these are the types of low probability events that happen all the time in our world, and yet people kind of whistle past that graveyard. And so again, maybe it's too much of a public service announcement to say like, you know, low probability stuff happens. And if you keep running around playing these low probability, picking up nickels in front of a steamroller, or mispriced lotto tickets, or however you want to frame it, it's just going to end poorly, right? It's just not going to end well. And there's, you know, and likewise, I've seen like a lot of people get really excited recently about this notion that like, you've got to go big or go home, right? YOLO, diamond hands, whatever the, you know, vernacular of the day is that tries to capture this kind of stuff. And it's like, look, that's great. I obviously concentrate a lot in my own investments, but I like to think that I do it in a very discerning way after hundreds and hundreds of hours of work and thinking about it. And and in cases where the odds are so skewed to protect my downside, whereas, you know, look, if you don't know what you're doing or you make a mistake or that, one in a hundred chance, let alone the one in a thousand chance comes home and blows you up. I mean, concentration is the easiest way to get yourself killed literally and figuratively. Right. And, and I feel like that's kind of fallen out of, you know, the popular mindset lately, which is odd because you'd think that something like a pandemic would kind of drive that point home. I don't know.
0: I know it might be a tangent, but what level of, what number of positions in a book would you say is concentrated?
1: Well, it gets somewhat subjective. I think again, it gets back to this idea of statistical independence, right? Because you know, if you if you're going to like a factor style analysis, you know, it it could be something like what we saw last year, where if you had short-term capital or like a high spending requirement out of portfolio, and you owned eight different stocks, but three of them were like you know, an airline, a hotel, and a cruise line company, you know, that, that doesn't do a whole lot for you, right? But yeah, I mean, statistically speaking, I think you can run the analysis and look at the covariance between securities in a portfolio and the the incremental diversification benefits beyond like the 15th or 20th security in a portfolio become vanishingly small, right? So I would consider, I mean, for my own purposes, eight to 12, uh, is pretty concentrated and kind of where I tend to be, but again, I think that borders on the irresponsible for the recreational do nothing kind of Robin Hood style investor, right? I mean, that's that's total that's a recipe for disaster, I think, in their hands. You know, Steve Cohen uh, in a recent interview
2: said basically three ways to kind of go broke: uh, illiquidity, concentration, and leverage. And actually not by themselves, like if you are, if you have illiquid stocks, but you're just, you know, buying with cash and and so forth, you're going to be fine. But basically what he said was the danger comes when you start combining these. So one by itself, maybe you can manage it, but once you have two or all three of these going on in a portfolio, then you are whistling past the graveyard as uh, in his words. And uh, Phil, you know, you also reminded me of the Hemingway quote, how did you go bankrupt two ways, uh, gradually then suddenly. Right, yep. And that's kind of uh, a little bit that point as well. I would say just one thing, and I, I, I think it goes back to a, a discussion we had a while back about kind of probabilistic thinking. And uh, taking bets that where the expected value is positive, but it could be a zero. So let's say a coin flip where, you know, if it's you you put up a dollar. If it's heads, you lose the dollar. If it's tails, you get five bucks. That's that's something where it can be a zero, but at the same time, it's a positive expected value bet. And I think in the context of a portfolio. Those kinds of bets can make sense, especially if you are correct in estimating the probabilities. You know, with a coin flip, we have objective probabilities. In a in an investment context, we're usually dealing with subject subjective probabilities, and people tend to overestimate their own ability to to peg those probabilities. Uh, but if the if they are uh, the way they are in 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 the investor's favor, a small allocation uh, might actually make sense. So yeah, that's, and, you know, and I
1: think that's a great point. And I think it's worth exploring because I, I totally agree with you. If it's a positive expected probability, or if you're really good at putting together a portfolio of really small, diversified, semi-diversified, mostly independent bets, where the expected value and the distribution of values across the whole portfolio skews hugely in your favor, which you know, most good venture capitalists are are expert at that. And you add in the second layer of the incentives in that, you know, how many venture capitalists have more than 10, 20, 50 percent of their personal net worth in the venture capital fund itself? You know, I wouldn't guess too many of them. Right. So, they, you know, they're enormously well exposed to those sort of right tailed distributions that work in their favor. What I didn't really understand until I stopped to think about it was these negative expected value you know, very low probability events. Like, I'm going to go out and buy something with a negative, you know, expected value or a zero intrinsic value and ascribe some value to it in the hopes that it goes up 10x, 100x, whatever. Right. And so you look at the AMC's GameStop's Hertz stock last year. Hertz is a bad example because there was reflexivity there and in, in getting the bankruptcy court to move forward. But, you know, these really bad bets where the people making the bet know that it's a bad bet and they still don't care but it's just like a lottery mindset, right? I mean, it's just like the person that has no savings and you know, and doesn't really have a lot of excess money to play with. And they say, oh, screw it. You know, I'm going to spend 10 bucks, 20 bucks, 100 bucks on lottery tickets, because if I hit one, wow, that's going to make a huge difference. And if I lose the whole hundred bucks, who cares, right? And so that in and of itself is not some tragedy or disaster, but it gets back to the innumeracy of the compounding effect, right? I mean, just like 1% probabilities in a given year really add up to a meaningful chance over 50 years, you start spending, you know, 10 bucks a week over your entire life on lottery tickets that are a terrible bet. I mean, that actually does become somewhat material, right? And I think it just leads to more sloppy behavior and and sloppy thinking, and it's just generally not the way to go.
2: Yep, yep, I would definitely agree with that.
0: And John, I think your example from Steve Cohen is really interesting because that's another way that people have trouble with numbers. Because it's like combinatorial factors—they multiply—and I see analysts like lazily take small numbers and add them up to get a result when you know they're trying to multiply when when they're saying three factors combine. Um, because in small numbers, you could just add them up, and you're going to be right within you know one decimal place but when one of the numbers when any of the fa- when any one of the one factors get big and you're just adding instead of multiplying holy cow you're going to be off by a mile and um you know crazy things happen and it's inter- interesting to hear him say that recently I, di- I didn't get to read the interview yet it's queued up on my list in light of what happened to his protege and that hemingway quote you know how did you go bankrupt two ways gradually then suddenly from the sun also rises. I have it sitting, you know, on my desk in a post-it note that you know I just wrote as a reminder myself many years ago. Don't let like really bad habits chisel into anything um, because you know gradually then suddenly is not a good combination. So um, you know I thought it was interesting that you invoked that right there. But there's so many ways that numbers could trick you, and I I I do find these things fascinating. It's very hard. Um, and you know, I, I think this is an important topic. I think we started in in a different area, but it's all the same. I don't, I don't think it's any different topically.
1: No, it's not any different topically. I just find it personally useful that, you know, just like if you tape to your desk, don't be an idiot today, you know, can help you avoid big mistakes and just, you know, kind of think to yourself like, all right, is this a 1% chance that's going to catch up and bite me in the rear end at some point? I think it's a good way to help.
0: Yeah. You know, I also think, After Black Swan came out as a book, like there was this misimpression of, A, everyone saw a black swan everywhere they looked and B, that all black swans are like bad. So everyone's just looking for like the next bad thing to blow up. And, um, you know, uh, maybe for one, they are incredibly rare, so they don't happen as often. So this is the flip side of what you introduced topically, but I think it's still kind of relevant. People see outliers everywhere they look, which is, you know, another, yeah.
1: you know, that's a great point. They're really, that's a really good point because there was this whole like fetish around, like, I'm going to be the next big short and I'm going to find the next overpriced bubble wherever it was. Right. I mean, whether it was in U S municipal debt or, you know, China or what were the other themes? Canadian housing was a good one for a while there. So coming out of 08 and 09, You know, there was this huge fetish, like I'm going to find the next Black Swan and I'm going to be the first one to short it and get Michael Lewis to write a book out of me. And it was all like this negative side thing. And now it's, you're right, it's totally flipped. It's like I'm going to find the next Diamond Hands, like rocket to the moon, goes up 100x for no reason,
0: kind of thing. And
1: so you're right, there's just kind of a fad element to all this, and it's all kind of cyclical.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. You don't see tail risk funds starting today. Those were so popular for a little while.
1: You don't see anything with a short starting today, right? (laughs) Absolutely, yeah.
2: It also, um, you know, there's that Bill Gates quote that's that's different, but also kind of resonates. Uh, where he said that most people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in ten years. I think it's a little bit well, in in terms of what we were just talking about. I feel like, you know, people look at the near term, and yeah, it's a one percent chance of going bust. It's not going to happen to me. You kind of just just want to hope for the best. But as you said, Phil, over time that really compounds. And the thing is, if you survive that, you know, Russian roulette uh, once, and you get that nice payoff. When are you going to stop? You know, that is the big problem with gamblers is they tell themselves, I'm just going to do this once and take the profit and I'm going to stop. And if they did that, you know what? 99% of them would be fine. But (laughs) they actually don't do that because then you're like, I'll just do it one more time and I'll just do it one more time. And then
1: you basically only stop when you do blow up. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think yeah, I've had a lot of people, not a lot of people, but a couple of people I know personally that have been involved in private equity roll-ups of various industries or very businesses, various businesses. And it's an axiom, but it's true that, you know, those things work. And the problem is that they work until the very end and it's the last deal. That kills you, right? And so, because the last deal that doesn't work is always the biggest, right? By definition, and so that's what makes it so difficult and so lucrative, but also so dangerous.
2: Well, on that note, guys, thank you for another great discussion. Uh, really enjoyed it, and I hope everyone listening did as well. Take care for now.